You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Rushed for time, do you scan your journals for interesting studies and then only read the abstracts? You may be missing more than just the details. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is the Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. Dr. Dubofsky recently authored the book, Psychotropic Drug Prescriber's Survival Guide, Ethical Mental Health Treatment in the Age of Big Pharma. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I was just chatting before we started the show about how helpful I found your book. And I'm curious as to what led to you writing this book. Well, my daughter and I co-authored this book, and we felt that there was a need for something that was less uh, polemical and less uh, absolutist than the uh, books that have been written on the topic of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on prescribing practices in medicine in general and uh, on psychiatry in particular. We felt that while there's been quite a bit of work done in this uh, area, most of it has a very absolute quality that tends to say, well, you shouldn't have anything to do with the drug companies and physicians should not be permitted to interact with industry representatives, et cetera, because their uh, advertising methods can influence prescribing. And you don't really see this in any other field, and it didn't strike us as particularly realistic. So we thought we'd come up with a real-life approach to how to deal with the influence of industry and how to deal with the influence of a lot of other uh, people and uh, institutions that have a very profound effect on our prescribing practices and our thinking in psychiatry. Well, I really appreciated the real-life aspect of it, that it's clear that you see patients and that you practice where I think some of the people that write on this topic must not because they seem to have such absolute ideas that they couldn't possibly be in the real world. I also wonder what it's like to write a book with your daughter. Well, it's a wonderful experience. She's a senior medical student now. And this is the second book we've written together. We wrote another book in 2002 called Concise Guide to Mood Disorders. And uh, she's smarter than I am, so uh, I get to follow her along. Oh, it's really wonderful. Now, one of my favorite chapters in your book is called Research Design 101. I think most of us, or many of us, have forgotten, or or maybe we never even knew about how to design a valid trial. Uh, Why is it important for a practicing doc to understand how research is done? Well, we are the consumers of research information, and this information tends to be packaged in various ways and presented to us for uh, ease of consumption. But the thing is that simply looking at the conclusion of a study doesn't really tell you if the study is valid or not. And uh, patients depend on us to, as clinicians to interpret all the data that come out. And as you know, there's a mass of information every day, uh, new studies on uh, clinical psychiatry. And uh, a lot of that uh, information is contradictory. So it, the patients look to us to be able to understand that research and interpret it and apply it to them, not to the abstract patient, because the study that you read that was conducted in one setting 
may or may not apply to the uh, patients you actually treat. Now, the studies of, of new treatments, particularly medications, can be broken down into two types. What are they? In general, uh, broadly speaking, there are two types of clinical trials. One is called an efficacy study, and the other is called an effectiveness study. Now, what efficacy studies uh, are, are studies that ask the question, does this treatment work in the ideal population of patients? And uh, what you do here is select a population of patients who you're fairly sure are going to do well with your treatment, and then you design a placebo-controlled study in that group of patients where your chances are high of getting a positive result. An effectiveness trial, which is the second type of study, is a study of how well the medication works in the real world. And here you're getting a more heterogeneous sample of patients. You'd like to look not only at does your new treatment work better than a placebo, but how does it compare to existing treatments, and how does it work in the universe of patients that clinicians are likely to experience. If you look at the studies we have as psychiatrists, the majority of these are conducted in homogeneous samples of patients in a type of research design that aims to prove to the FDA that the medication meets certain standards of efficacy. We don't have a lot of effectiveness trials or real-life trials that tell us how do these drugs work in actual practice. The one everyone's heard about recently is the CATI trial. That's an effectiveness trial. And that really had quite different findings from most of the industry-sponsored efficacy studies that we've seen of the atypical antipsychotic drugs. So what can we really learn from these efficacy trials? Uh, certainly the ones I've been involved in, there aren't patients out there like these people in the studies. They have no comorbid conditions. There are no other medicines. They never drink. They never abuse substances. They have no personality disorders, no family stresses. Certainly I don't have any of those in my, my real clinical practice. So how can we use this information intelligently? It's an extremely important point. I don't think I've seen a depressed patient who was and suicidal in quite some time. And yet, if you're suicidal, as you know from doing these studies, you can't be enrolled. There was an interesting study in the Archives of General Psychiatry by Mark Zimmerman, and they looked at patients in their clinic in depression studies, and they looked at how many of them would have qualified for industry-sponsored efficacy studies of antidepressants, and they found like less than 10% of them would have gotten into these studies. So all you can say from some of the studies that look so nice that say, for example, Prozac is better than a placebo in the treatment of major depression is that it's better than a placebo in the ideal depressed patient who's not too severely depressed, isn't chronically depressed, as you said, isn't the drinker, doesn't use drugs, isn't psychotic, isn't bipolar, doesn't have significant access to problems has an intact family, is able to consent to a study and to remain in it. And that's really the minority of patients that we see. What you do is you take that information and you say, well, how well does this predict the medication is going to work uh, for my patient? Also, speaking of those antidepressant studies, remember that a response 
is defined as 50% less depressed as measured on a depression rating scale, usually a Hamilton scale. So what you can certify to your patients is that the FDA has determined that in somebody with a pure type of depression, this medication is more likely than a placebo to make you feel half as depressed as you do now, which isn't exactly a ringing endorsement. So we, we take that information, we say this looks promising in the ideal patient. Now what I'm going to do is conduct my own clinical trials with my patients, and I won't say this medication should work, so I'm going to keep giving it to you for the next two years and hope that sooner or later you come around. You'll say, well, these studies are generally six to eight week studies, and they show that the patients are so much better in that period of time. And if you're not that much better in this period of time, then I'm going to do something different. Let me remind our listeners that you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Stephen Dubofsky. We are discussing how to interpret clinical studies in real life. Now, Steve, in your book, you talk a fair amount about what p-values really tell us. And I think probably for the first time in public, I'm going to admit to you that I have never taken a statistics class. <laughs> I don't know how I managed to get through all of school and training, but never have. What can you tell us about p-values? Well, you know, I never did either, and it was Amelia, my daughter, who now they make you take statistics in medical school, so she knew all about this. A lot of times we see p-values, p-less than such and such, and what we think that indicates is that this medication where this treatment really works. And a lot of times we'll see P less than 0.0001, and we say, boy, that must be a lot more certain to be effective than P less than 0.05. What a p-value means is that the difference between your experimental medication or treatment, the treatment that you're testing, and the reference treatment, a placebo or another medication, that that difference will occur by chance about 5% of the time. That's what P less than 0.05 means. So if you do this study 100 times, five times it'll come out the way that was observed just by chance, and it doesn't mean that the medication is really better than a placebo. This is different from saying that there's a 95% chance that the difference between the groups is a true difference. It just means that 95% of the time you're going to get the result you expected, 5% of the time you won't. When you design a study, you do something called a power analysis. And what that means is you look at the expected differences between groups and how well you expect your treatment to impact your endpoint, which is going to be, as I said earlier, let's say a depression rating scale score or a psychosis score or a functioning score or whatever. And you say, based on the patients in my population, based on how much variability there is in their scores to begin with, based on how good my medicine is, I am going to need so many patients to get a p-value of 0.05, that is to feel that 95% of the chance of the time I'm going to get this result if I repeat my study. That's just by convention. 
if you happen to get a p-value that's significantly lower than that, it doesn't mean your result is more significant. It just means that you met the threshold for determining a difference between the two treatments. These p-values are often presented deceptively to us to say, look, here's a really low p-value. This is really significant versus this is not as significant. It's either significant statistically or it's not significant statistically. By the way, the p less than 0.05, which is the tradition now, came from a time before you had computers doing statistical analysis, and they couldn't compute it exactly. So you'd look it up in a table, and you'd see if it was less than 0.05. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dubovsky. We've been discussing how to evaluate clinical trial data. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.